It's the Victorian Variety Show. Long I lay awake that night and listened to the thunder rolls and crashings of the mighty tide. Deeper than these distinct shocks of noise and all the storming of the nearer waves was the base of the further surf, a ceaseless, abysmal muttering to which the building trembled, a sound that seemed to imagination like the sound of the trampling of infinite cavalry, the massing of incalculable artillery, some rushing from the sunrise of armies wide as the world. Then I found myself thinking of the vague terror with which I had listened when a child to the voice of the sea. And I remembered that in after years, on different coasts in different parts of the world, the sound of surf had always revived the childish emotion. Certainly, this emotion was older than I by thousands of thousands of centuries the inherited sum of numberless terrors ancestral. But presently, there came to me the conviction that fear of the sea alone could represent but one element of the multitudinous awe awakened by its voice. For as I listened to that wild tide of the Saruga coast, I could distinguish nearly every sound of fear known to man. Not merely noises of battle tremendous, of interminable volleying, of immeasurable charging, but the roaring of beasts, the crackling and hissing of fire, the rumbling of earthquake, the thunder of ruin, and above all these, a clamor continual as of shrieks and smothered shoutings, the voices that are said to be the voices of the drowned, awfulness supreme of tumult, combining all imaginable echoings of fury and destruction and despair. And to myself, I said, is it wonderful that the voice of the sea should make us serious? Consonantly to its multiple utterance must respond all waves of immemorial fear that move in the vaster sea of soul experience. Deep calleth unto deep. The visible abyss calls to that abyss invisible of elder being whose flood flow made the ghosts of us. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast in which I talk about lesser known aspects of life during the Victorian era, not only because I personally find them interesting and hopefully you do too, but also because they're ones that I think more people should know about. I think it's amazing how once you're out of school, how often you come across a person or a phenomenon for the first time and see contributions that they've made to the world. And you wonder, why did I not learn of this when I was in school? But then again, if these things were commonly known, I suppose I'd have less to talk about. So there's that. Anyway, my name is Marissa. And the quote I just read was taken from At Yezu, a piece from a collection of writings by Lafcadio Hearn 
called In Ghostly Japan, which was first published in 1899. Since I'm recording this episode during the last weekend in October, which is my favorite month, and Halloween is my favorite holiday, and I like to focus on scary topics in my October episodes, I thought, what better way to close out the month than to look at a writer who's best known for his ghost stories? However, even though I've become a fan of Hearn over the past few years and knew a little about his personal life before I started doing research for this episode, I ended up finding out a great deal that I didn't know about him before. And since there's still a lot that I haven't read by him, I may want to look at him again in a future episode. But I first became aware of him through his ghost stories and think they're an excellent way to approach him for the first time. So in a bit, I'm going to read a short piece by Hearn called The Corpse Rider. But before that, I'm going to give you a brief overview of his life, which I think influenced many of his writings on ghostly matters. And before I go any further, I want to apologize for any mispronunciations of Japanese words or names that I make during this episode. I have tried to find the correct pronunciations for all of them, but in some cases, I wasn't able to. Patrick Lafcadio Hearn was born on June 27, 1850, on the Ionian island of Lafcada, hence his middle name, which he went by for much of his adult life. Lafcada is now part of Greece, but at the time of Hearn's birth was under British control. His mother, Rosa, was Greek, and his Irish father, Charles, was a staff surgeon in the British Army. In Why Lefcadio Hearn's Ghost Stories Still Haunt Us, Jonathan Dee tells us that while the couple were seeing each other, Rosa's brother, who, quote, viewed their liaison as a stain on the family's honor, end quote, stabbed Charles multiple times. But their love only seemed to grow after Rosa nursed Charles back to health. After Hearn was born, they moved to Dublin, but Charles's family wasn't pleased with Rosa, who spoke little English. Plus, I wouldn't be surprised if Rosa's Southern European ethnicity didn't play a role in how Charles's family received her, because Dee suggests that according to European standards of the time, Hearn was considered to be of mixed race. After that, more drama ensued. Charles cheated, and Rosa, who showed signs of mental illness, returned to the Ionian Islands when Hearn was four. He never saw her again, and three years later, after Hearn's father remarried and moved to India, he never saw him again either, and was sent to live with his great aunt, Sarah, in Dublin. According to Dee, it's been said that Hearn's mind was, quote, dominated by horror from an early age, end quote, with an intense fear of the dark in particular. Looking at the first few years of Hearn's life, it's understandable to me why this might be the case. Eventually, Aunt Sarah sent Hearn to a Roman Catholic boarding school, during which time he suffered from a severe injury to his left eye that left him permanently blind in that eye and, according to Dee, made him self-conscious about what he saw as a disfigurement. But then Sarah went broke and withdrew him. 
Hearn lived in an East London slum with a former maid of Sarah's until he was 19, when one of his father's relatives gave him a one-way ticket to New York and the address of another relative in Cincinnati, Ohio. On arriving in Cincinnati, instead of a warm welcome, Hearn was basically handed a few dollars, according to Wikipedia, five dollars, and was sent on his merry way. Hearn took a job first as a printer's assistant, but seems to have worked his way up to writer after taking an emergency assignment to cover a sensational local murder. Dee explains that Hearn's story was reprinted in newspapers across the U.S., and Hearn soon began covering violent stories for the Cincinnati Inquirer, using Dismal Man as his byline. In an article called The Many Lives of Lefkadio Hearn, Andre Kodrescu describes Hearn's early writings for this publication as, quote, blood-curdling reportage steeped in gothic horror. They scandalized the readers of the Inquirer and lifted the newspaper from near bankruptcy to a prosperous business. Hearn's ultra-realist exposés were drenched in the wounded sensibility of a writer with a merciless eye who had Greek myths and Celtic fairy tales in his blood. End quote. After being fired from that job for marrying Alethea Foley, a former slave, because interracial marriages were illegal in Ohio at the time, Hearn worked for some time for the Inquirer's rival paper, the Cincinnati Commercial, then moved to New Orleans, where, in addition to writing editorials and short fiction, he also provided French translations and developed a strong interest in Creole culture and cuisine. From there, he spent two years in the Caribbean island of Martinique, where he wrote two years in the French West Indies. Dee notes that, quote, as his authority and reputation grew, his writing took on a certain quality of cultural ownership. Never having had a real home, he compulsively and rather lovingly documented the domestic customs of wherever he was living at the time, end quote. Saying Hearn continued in this vein when he moved to Japan for a magazine assignment at the age of 39 would be a bit of an understatement. To be more precise, he never left. He became intensely interested in the country's history and culture, particularly as it was depicted in folktales, and wrote over a dozen books on a wide variety of subjects. He married a woman from a samurai family and, to become a Japanese citizen, took the family name, so he went by Koizumi Yakumo from 1896 until his death in 1904. It's important to note that when Hearn arrived in this country in 1890, it was still undergoing immense transformation in virtually every area of life. The Meiji era, which began in 1868 and lasted until 1912. For over 250 years prior to this era, during its Edo or Tokugawa period, Japan was a rigidly hierarchical feudal society that isolated itself from much of the world. But during the Meiji era, Japan quickly adopted industrialization and opened itself up to foreign influence. This is a huge oversimplification of a major historical period. So all I'll add for now is that at the beginning of the 20th century, 
Japan was still largely unknown to Westerners due to its long isolationist period, and Hearn's writings played a significant role in changing that. In addition, after his works were translated into Japanese, Hearn gained such a wide following in Japan that he still read in many Japanese schools and one can visit a number of museums and historical societies dedicated to him in several areas there in which he lived. According to Wikipedia, Hearn is admired in Japan because he offers glimpses, quote, of an older, more mystical Japan lost during the country's hectic plunge into Western-style industrialization and nation-building. His books are treasured here as a trove of legends and folktales that otherwise might have vanished because no Japanese had bothered to record them." End quote. Although Hearn was fascinated by most things Japanese and wrote on a wide variety of subjects, he is best known for his Japanese ghost stories, or kaidan. It's important to emphasize that even though many stories in this genre are truly frightening, it might be said that scaring people is generally not Kaidan's primary purpose. Rather, these folktales, which are heavily inspired by Buddhism, focus on interactions between the living and the dead. So, you might say the horror is more of a byproduct of that. According to D, Hearn seems to have become familiar with many of these folktales thanks to his wife, Setsu, who would purchase books of them from secondhand stores, read and memorize them, and recite them in English to Hearn late at night before they went to bed. Apparently, Hearn would be terrified by what he heard, and then he'd take notes. D explains that according to Hearn, our main fear regarding ghosts is, quote, not of seeing or hearing them, but of being touched by them. The kaidan both exploit that revulsion and offer the heroic spectacle of characters whose passions enable them to overcome it, end quote. I want to discuss a few reasons why Hearn was drawn to this genre, but first I would like to give you another example of his writing especially if you've never read any of his works. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, the story that I'm going to read is called The Corpse Rider, and it appears in a collection of his writings called Shadowings, which was published in 1900 under the subheading Stories from Strange Books. There are two other sections in the book, Japanese Studies, in which Hearn analyzes female Japanese names and old Japanese songs, and Fantasies. I think this is a strong collection in part because it's a good example of how, despite Hearn's interest in ghost stories and the supernatural, as well as his talent in writing in this genre, he was broadly interested in Japan's history and culture. The body was cold as ice. The heart had long ceased to beat. Yet, there were no other signs of death. Nobody even spoke of burying the woman. She had died of grief and anger at having been divorced. It would have been useless to bury her because the last undying wish of a dying person for vengeance can burst asunder any tomb 
and rift the heaviest graveyard stone. People who lived near the house in which she was lying fled from their homes. They knew that she was only waiting for the return of the man who had divorced her. At the time of her death, he was on a journey. When he came back and was told what had happened, terror seized him. If I can find no help before dark, he thought to himself, she will tear me to pieces. It was yet only the hour of the dragon, but he knew that he had no time to lose. He went at once to an Inyoshi and begged for succor. The Inyoshi knew the story of the dead woman, and he had seen the body. He said to the supplicant, a very great danger threatens you. I will try to save you, but you must promise to do whatever I shall tell you to do. There is only one way by which you can be saved. It is a fearful way, but unless you find the courage to attempt it, she will tear you limb from limb. If you can be brave, come to me again in the evening before sunset. The man shuddered, but he promised to do whatever should be required of him. The dead woman was lying on her face. Now you must get astride upon her, said the Inyoshi, and sit firmly on her back, as if you were riding a horse. Come, you must do it. The man shivered so that the Inyoshi had to support him, shivered horribly, but he obeyed. Now, take her hair in your hands, commanded the Inyoshi, half in the right hand, half in the left. So, you must grip it like a bridle. Twist your hands in it, both hands tightly. That is the way. Listen to me. You must stay like that till morning. You will have reason to be afraid in the night, plenty of reason. But whatever may happen, never let go of her hair. If you let go, even for one second, she will tear you into gobbets. The Yoshi then whispered some mysterious words into the ear of the body and said to its rider, now, for my own sake, I must leave you alone with her. Remain as you are. Above all things, remember that you must not let go of her hair. And he went away, closing the doors behind him. Hour after hour, the man sat upon the corpse in black fear, and the hush of the night deepened and deepened about him till he screamed to break it. Instantly, the body sprang beneath him as to cast him off, and the dead woman cried out loudly, Oh, how heavy it is! Yet I shall bring that fellow here now. Then tall she rose and leaped to the doors and flung them open and rushed into the night, always bearing the weight of the man. But he, shutting his eyes, kept his hands twisted in her long hair, tightly, tightly, though fearing with such a fear that he could not even moan. How far she went, he never knew. He saw nothing. He heard only the sound of her naked feet in the dark. Pitcha, 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 and the hiss of her breathing as she ran. At last she turned and ran back into the house and lay down upon the floor exactly as at first. Underneath the man, she panted and moaned till the cocks began to crow. Thereafter, she lay still. 
But the man, with chattering teeth, sat upon her until the Inyoshi came at sunrise. So you did not let go of her hair, observed the Inyoshi, greatly pleased. That is well. Now you can stand up. He whispered again into the ear of the corpse, and then said to the man, You must have passed a fearful night, but nothing else could have saved you. Hereafter, you may feel secure from her vengeance. The conclusion of the story I do not think to be morally satisfying. It is not recorded that the corpse rider became insane, or that his hair turned white. We are told only that he worshipped the Inyoshi with tears of gratitude. A note appended to the recital is equally disappointing. It is reported, the Japanese author says, that a grandchild of the man who rode the corpse still survives, and that a grandson of the Inyoshi is at this very time living in a village called Otokunoimura, probably pronounced Otonoimura. This village name does not appear in any Japanese directory of today, but the names of many towns and villages have been changed since the foregoing story was written. I would like you to come up with your own interpretation of this story. So what I'm going to tell you now applies to Hearn's ghost stories in general. Dee speculates that Hearn's unhappy childhood probably had something to do with his interest in this genre. For example, many of Hearn's tales involve a woman who disappears, which, given Hearn's abandonment by both parents as a child, comes as no surprise to me. Also, I think it's likely that distrust of the Roman Catholicism of the aunt who raised him and the boarding school that he attended may have contributed to his interest in the supernatural, in a similar vein to one that we've already seen during the Victorian era. Namely, that a lot of people were becoming disillusioned with institutionalized religion and turning toward mediumship, seances, mesmerism, and the like, as well as finding new ways to cope with death. In addition, Kodrescu portrays Hearn as a lifelong outsider. In discussing Japanese ghost stories, which he sets off in quote marks, Kodrescu writes, quote, the attention that the Japanese paid to the afterlife was detailed and absorbing. The afterlife was as populous and eventful as life, but its observation from this shore made it eerie, like the negative of an old film that was forbidden to view. This made it fascinating, of course, but it was of particular interest to Hearn because he had been tossed like a coin from one reality to another, and he made the ghost world one of his lives, end quote. Looking at Hearn's life, I definitely get the sense that he harbored a deep sense of alienation from his family, peers, and even the nation he was raised in. As a result, even though I wouldn't say he was necessarily comfortable with the ghost world, I don't think he was more uncomfortable with it than the so-called real world either. And a result, he may have been less likely to run from it than someone with a more quote-unquote stable life might have been. One word I've thought of in connection with Hearn is liminal, 
which is derived from the Latin word lemon, meaning threshold. According to dictionary.com, liminal is, quote, an adjective that's used to describe things that exist at the threshold or border between one thing and another, end quote. And in this brief discussion, I think we can see Hearn standing on a number of thresholds throughout his life, between Greek and Irish culture, certainly, and when he was in New Orleans, between Creole and Anglo-American culture, and then as a European in Japan, and then, as we were just saying, between the living and the spirit world. I'm going to conclude this discussion by noting that even though, as Gregory Giustanis notes in Lafcadio Hearn, Global Before Globalization, Hearn may very well still be a quote-unquote household name in Japan, he has been criticized for exoticizing Japan and what is often considered cultural appropriation today. In other words, this occurs when someone from what is considered a quote-unquote dominant, usually Western, culture adopts the practices and beliefs of a quote-unquote non-dominant, which is usually non-Western, culture. I definitely think that when we look at Hearn, we need to remember that even if he was seen as quote-unquote biracial in 19th century Europe, he was, for all intents and purposes, probably seen as a white European man in Japan. And it's safe to say that adopting the lifestyle of a quote-unquote non-dominant culture is a privilege that Europeans and those of European descent have that non-white and or people of non-European descent usually don't. Still, I personally feel Hearn's contributions to the literary world and our understanding of Japanese literature and culture far outweigh these negatives. And when I've read him, I've always gotten the sense that he maintained an open mind and sense of humility throughout his life and nurtured a genuine appreciation and curiosity toward different cultures that was unrivaled by many of his contemporaries and still is in short supply today. And although Hearn lived during an age of vast imperialism, I don't believe his traveling was comparable to the kind we've seen among many privileged Europeans during this time. For example, those who traveled to Asia or Africa for elaborate hunting expeditions who brought quote-unquote exotic animal specimens back home to have stuffed and display in their drawing rooms. Rather, I think Hearn traveled in search of a home that he really didn't have as a child, but also to build connections with people and cultures, regardless of how different that they were from the one that he had as a child. But now, I would love to know what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash Marissa hyphen D96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash Victorian Variety One. If you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash MarissaDF13 or leave me a tip on my Linktree page at Linktree slash The Victorian Variety Show 
or on the Good Pods app. And finally, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or wherever you're listening, because it helps the show find new listeners. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you're listening to this before Halloween, I hope you have a very happy one. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode that I am really excited about. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with another passage from Lefkadio Hearns at Yezu. I really like this excerpt because the folks saying about the waves becoming higher if you voice your fears really resonates with me. I've seen a lot of examples in both horror literature and films and in real life of negative forces becoming stronger once their name is spoken or when they're acknowledged in some other way. So I do think this is a very real phenomena. But also, I really like the power that Hearn gives to nature, such as when he says he can't persuade himself that the sea isn't alive and suggests what darkness is capable of unleashing. I think this is a great example of the humility that I've seen in Hearn and his openness to the possibility that there are worlds and souls other than the ones we know and very often take for granted. I have noticed that even animals, horses and cows, become meditative in the presence of the sea. They stand and stare and listen as if the sight and sound of that immensity made them forget all else in the world. There is a folk saying of the coast, the sea has a soul and hears. And the meaning is thus explained. Never speak of your fear when you feel afraid at sea. If you say that you are afraid, the waves will suddenly rise higher. Now, this imagining seems to me absolutely natural. I must confess that when I am either in the sea or upon it, I cannot fully persuade myself that it is not alive, a conscious and a hostile power. Reason, for the time being, avails nothing against this fancy. In order to be able to think of the sea as a mere body of water, I must be upon some height from whence its heaviest billowing appears but a lazy creeping of tiny ripples. But the primitive fancy may be roused even more strongly in darkness than by daylight. How living seem the smolderings and the flashings of the tide on nights of phosphorescence. How reptilian the subtle shifting of the tints of its chilly flame. Dive into such a night sea, open your eyes in the black-blue gloom, and watch the weird gush of lights that follow your every motion. Each luminous point, as seen through the flood, like the opening and closing of an eye. At such a moment, one feels indeed as if enveloped by some monstrous sentiency suspended within some vital substance that feels and sees and wills alike in every part, an infinite, soft, cold ghost. Mm-hmm.